Hello, welcome to the Activation Project, where we teach you how to activate your mind, activate your tribe, and activate the world. <laughs> my name is Olivia Eden. I'm here with my co-host, Christina Sarmiento, and we have a very, very special guest on here today. His name is Justin. That would have been awesome if you couldn't remember my name all of a sudden. Yeah, that would have been pretty bad. Jason. <laughs> Jason Justin knows, but you guys will love him. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to Austin? My name is Justin. I'm 39 years old. I'm actually from Michigan. I'm sorry, what is your last name? Holcomb. Holcomb, I knew that. Holcomb. I'm originally from Michigan. I was raised really poor in a really strict Christian household. Very Pentecostal speaking in tongues. We used to go to church like seven days a week. So starting about 14, 15 years old, I really started to get involved in like full-time ministry. I would lead worship, preach, travel around, do stuff like that. There was an interesting juxtaposition from being so young and being so sheltered, but also having so much power and responsibility over people's spiritual lives or however you want to put it. When I eventually left the church when I was about 19. It was almost like I lived my teenage years in my 20s. So being a musician, I just dove deep and I spent all of my 20s and a majority of my 30s partying really hard, which traveling the world, playing music, but eventually led me to a really dark place. What was your drug of choice? I tried everything, but I think because it was so normalized, maybe just the way that I'm wired, alcohol ended up becoming my drug of choice. I could walk away from cocaine or heroin, but alcohol, again, because it's legal and everybody does it. Do you think some of that had to do with the shame around the way you were raised about drugs? I didn't steer away from drugs. It's just when I was done with drugs, I was able to stop. Alcohol basically relieved my trauma. It made me feel comfortable with me. It made me feel comfortable with me until it didn't, which brought me to last summer where I was drinking basically a fifth a day. I was drinking from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to sleep. There was no intervention. There was no run-in with the law. It was just, it's time. There wasn't even like some spiritual awakening. There was no catalyst that was like epic story moments where someone Mm. gave me an ultimatum. I was just... I'm going to die and I don't want to feel like this anymore. So I checked into a very rough Medicaid-funded rehab in Detroit. That was the best experience of my life, by the way. Very, just got honest with myself, had a great therapist. While I was in rehab, I... Very serendipitously, I was able to get a good management deal and a record deal, and I was moving out to L.A., and I was traveling the country post-rehab, just writing a record. I stopped in Austin. Once I realized that the COVID thing was going to be an issue for our country, I decided to not move to L.A., hang out here in Austin. And that's where I've been since last February, and just recording and writing and meeting cool people like you. Yeah, so three days ago, I went to take my dog to the dog park, which I have not done probably since before Corona. And I barely saw anyone there. So I was like, actually, I don't know if I'm going to do this because it's not fun if there's like one or two dogs. But I decided to do it anyway. And our dogs ended up starting playing together. And, you know, we immediately both discovered that we were raised in a religious cult. So decided to link up and just kind of you know, talk about our lives and stuff. He went and listened to a couple of our first episodes of the podcast and very graciously offered to let us use the studio that he had just set up. And so we're really, really grateful and thankful to be here. And then he's just such a brilliant dude. He's in the middle of publishing his book called Stumbling Into Sobriety, which we'll let him talk about a little bit more later. One of the really interesting 
conversations that we had was about the topic of toxic transparency. And there's a long list that goes with that, you know, with all of the fake pseudo woke spiritual cultures, especially in Boston right now with the influx of coaches and guides and shamans and you name it, like these people who are trying to guide and lead other people, they are really focused on this concept of toxic positivity, toxic vulnerability. What are a few more? Spiritual bypassing, like we talked about in the earlier episodes and that people just aren't aware of their shadows, that they get so enlightened that they are only talking about where they are spiritually and not where they are in present day. I'm going to show you what's good about me, but I'm not going to show you what's not. Right. Absolutely. It was this topic that made me really want to work with you guys because I have experienced so much of everybody wants to be a guru. Everybody wants to be a spiritual leader. What Um, bothers you the most about that stuff? Well, first and foremost, and again, this is our test run. So We apologize for the noise and whatnot, but I don't want to be cynical or elitist and pretend that I'm better than those people. I think what happens in growing up as a minister, what happens is you see somebody who has what you want. So you think you have to do all the things that they're doing. So if you like Tim Ferriss or pick anybody that, you know, you might look up to, you're like, yeah, so you're kind of like, well, they have a podcast and, you know, you're supposed to teach what you've learned. So I think everyone tries to jump towards the leadership thing. And by doing that, they have to pretend to be farther along than they are. So I think it's rooted in sincerity. I'm not like, oh, these people are terrible. Totally, totally, um, totally. Yeah. So at least they are trying to make a positive impact. And we are not negating that. We just think that with that positive impact becomes a lot of negative feedback. So he gave me this beautiful uh, metaphor. He says it perfectly about the finish line or the markers. Yeah. So it's the idea that we're kind of pressured to pretend that we've crossed certain finish lines. And the analogy that popped up that when we first met that's a little bit different is it's the equivalent of having company over. And so you power clean your house and you take all of your mess and you just shove it into these corners and um, into, the closet. into the closet, not into the corners. Or, Dirt you know, under the rug, which is yeah. what I like to do. So then it's kind of like, look at my house. This is wonderful. But when you're trying to be a leader or more importantly, just appear to somebody, they need to see what's in your closet. That's why they're there. They're there because of their mess. So the, you were talking about the shadow thing, the fact that we only project the good parts or only focus on that is actually really counterproductive because it's the mess that actually needs to be put on display. And after listening to some of the your guys' episodes, it's I'm it, like, it's essentially like, cheating. Like, it's holy like cutting shit, the these, cocoon, you know, early. Yeah. 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 I love them when people trigger me because... Perception is projection, and everything I see that I like in someone is already me, and I already know that, but everything that I don't like in someone is that repressed part of me that I don't know what it is, and if it shows up through a mirror of you in front of me, then I'm like, oh, wow, it's there. It's sometimes difficult to deal with, but after I see it, I can't unsee it, and then I can integrate it and make it a part of my reality instead of this unwanted behavior that's coming up in me and the other person. And when I create that healing inside of myself, it actually helps the other person too, because then it just disappears from your reality. I was on the trail, and I was like, oh, these people, I was like, it's like a road. You go down this way, and you come this way, and I'm just like all like piss and vinegar about it. And, and they then, step right out in front of And you're just like, I'm like right here. And then I was like, wait, 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 wait. If this is bothering me, where do I do this? So I went, I went to Mellow Johnny's and I got a little mirror. So I was like, I'm pretty sure I do that to people that are behind me. The people are thinking the same thing about me. So I was like, let me fix this in myself. 
wow. and get the mirror. And then I went and got it. And then all of a sudden the trail is like 90% better than it was. Wow. That is incredible. <laughs> I struggled with the same thing. And it doesn't have to step right out in front of me. Why don't you, you know, I'm like I'm blasting music here for a reason. Essentially what I'm saying is everyone out of my way. Is what I'm saying, yeah. you know, instead of like, oh, yeah, a little, you know, maybe I can move. Here. But talking about like the way that I get triggered a lot is I know when I'm getting out of alignment because I'll feel like I'm under attack. The barista bitch was, you know, extra rude to me or that I saw that nasty look she gave me or she just yelled at me, you know, and it's just like, uh, uh, you know, like, why is everyone attacking me? And it's just like, okay. Wait, where am I being really overtly aggressive? Because I'm an overtly aggressive person at times. I feel like I'm coming into their space with that energy and it's just a mirror. It's just a reflection. So it's like, okay, how can I quickly step into gratitude for everything that I have? And that's a huge jump from aggression to gratitude. I can literally, because that's how I start every morning, I can find something to be grateful for. And my life is just extraordinary. I have nothing to complain about. And so it's understanding and recognizing where your triggers are, where they normally pop up, who they normally pop up with and to, and then go right into it, figure out what's going on, pay attention, integrate now, Teal Swan. Thank you. (laughs) So we were talking about as well, the concept of unconditional love, which these two have very interesting viewpoints on. I think that people confuse unconditional love with unconditional approval. Like, I want you to approve everything I do and let me no matter what I do. Like, I can cross your boundaries and you're you're still going to be there for me. And that's super toxic for me. And what I believe is that a lot of people have different meanings for words. So you're what's your meaning of love? That's a whole podcast in itself. (laughs) Well, if you were to give like your two sentence pitch of what love means first, unconditional love or no unconditional love well that's another thing too for me at this juncture in my life because i think i'm still parsing out what love is i think love is putting somebody else's just needs above your own or putting somebody else first but not in a toxic way but that's a a brief kind of a gross (laughs) so it's sort of the concept of selfless love yeah now christina doesn't believe that do you? Um, no, but what is your definition of love? I truly have taken Stefan Molyneux's definition from his book, Real Time Relationships, where he says love is our involuntary response to virtue if we are virtuous and everything else is unhealthy and dysfunctional attachment. And it might not even be unhealthy or dysfunctional. It could just be, well, it's probably dysfunctional, but it could be codependency. It could just be, you know, right place, right time where you're just there and you're helping each other but neither of you are on a very aligned path and you haven't connected with virtue in a long time, which was the story of my life, man. I, like virtue, what was it? Like I had no problem lying, stealing, like broke all the Ten Commandments usually in one night. So I actually want to make a correction on mine because I kind of was thinking in real time. It's not putting somebody else before myself. It's putting us before myself. And that means before I can put us before myself, I have to put, first of all, get my shit together, and then I can put us before me. So that's probably a better place of where I'm at right now. We don't have to get into it too far, but I think the only difference between that definition or the big 
thing that I have with that definition, how I feel, is to me, I'm still more on the love is a verb. And the fact that it's involuntary doesn't make it seem like a choice. And that's, mm. but that is something that I'm still digging into. Haven't you ever felt love for somebody immediately? And you're like, what the fuck? Like, I feel like I've known you my whole life and I'm in love with you. I think familiarity and affection doesn't necessarily equate love for me. I think it's what I do with that familiarity mm. and that affection. That's love No, I mean, me. when you meet somebody like for yeah. the first time, like in five minutes. Yeah, I don't. Oh, I don't think that's love. I think that that's familiarity and like instant acceptance. Where does that familiarity come from if you've never met them before? I don't know, but my definition of love is what I do with that. I might not be right, by the way. No one is right or wrong. Like this, these are just our okay. Never mind. I am right on that. (laughs) If it's a free for all. All right. So my 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 definition of love is to take one as a part of yourself. So your needs, wants, and desires, I take them on as they're a part of me. So if I truly love myself, then I would never do anything to harm someone else that is a part of me. I'm not doing anything to hurt myself. That comes from a more integrated space where in my household, we don't believe in compromise. That's not something like you take less and you take less and we both leave like unfucking happy. No, Mm -hmm. it's what are your needs down to your vulnerability, why you want it. Same thing with mine. Find a third option to meet both those needs. We act in each other's best interest all so, the time. And not what I think is in your best interest is what you specifically tell me what's in your best interest that I act upon. That's a little bit closer to mine, I guess, when I said the us then. Mm-hmm. Like the me and then the us. Two votes. No, I'm just, I'm just. <laughs> so Stefan Molyneux actually no I agree with her 100% because that's not changing our response to virtue or anything like that right but like so you could take somebody else on as yourself and both be living in sin sin the definition is to miss the mark right you're both kind of just like shooting blanks everywhere and not really focused in alignment with your path and still, like, really nurture each other and help each other's needs, whatever. So I don't see those as opposing viewpoints. But an example of that that Stefan Molyneux gives in real-time relationships is, like, you know, so it's movie night. And he grabs, you know, his movie that he wants to watch from upstairs and he comes down. And he sees that his wife is already watching Dancing with the Stars. Now, he can get upset about it and be like, hey, we always watch what you want. Or I had already picked this out. Can we maybe watch this? Or... He can decide to watch, you know, what she's watching. Now, like, that could be considered compromise, except for the fact that he loves making his wife happy more than anything else. So for him, it doesn't feel like a compromise because he sees how happy she is as she's watching this show. And it makes him just as happy that he can't wait to participate with her in the viewing of the show that she had picked out, even though he had originally thought he wanted something else. So it didn't feel like a compromise. It felt like him just, you know, having the absolute sheer pleasure spending time with his wife. So I believe that we have a set of so-called slave virtues right so like that whole concept of unconditional love which is really unconditional approval in a lot of cases or you have this selflessness this selfless love which by the way these are not bad things but the way that we have been conditioned to do them which is how religion has been used to control people it's like no you have to unconditionally love and forgive everybody especially your family even if they're abusing you etc 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 honor their mother and father even if they've you know raped you or abandoned you and it's just bullshit 
No, like we have to be able to create boundaries physically, emotionally, and spiritually. The other thing I wanted to go into is what happens with this whole vulnerability and stuff like that is we can use it to manipulate the narrative. So where we keep the audience focused on our past and what we have gone through, what we've come through, what we've survived, rapes, abortions, abandonment, homelessness, alcoholism, addiction, all of this stuff. So we can be like, look at me, look at what I came from. I am so strong. And like he was saying about crossing these certain finish lines, when in reality, we really haven't made it through some of these major dilemmas that we've been suffering from that have been programmed into us. I want to jump back on the crossing certain finish lines. One of the best pieces of advice that I've ever gotten. I actually can't remember who said it, but I was reading in an article. It was it was by some musician and he was talking about how early on in his career, someone had given him this advice. It was that don't forget to celebrate the small finish lines because what happens is people have an ultimate goal in mind. So let's stick with him as a musician and be like, I want to have a number one record or I want to sell a million records or I want to play this certain thing. There are a lot of steps in between there. And what we do is we sell ourselves on this idea that when I get this ultimate finish line, I'm going to be happy. And what happens is you ignore all the good things that happen in between. You say, I want to play for 10,000 people. So you're like, you go out there and you're like, oh, there's only 500 people. You're not like, oh my God, there's 500 people out there. You know, you don't savor those moments. So what he was saying, he was like, I have friends who have all their dreams have come true, but they're miserable. You know, people have said it for thousands of years. They didn't pay attention to that journey along the way. And to apply that to toxic positivity is that people sincerely want to be healthy, that they're just like, if I can just get to here. So especially when you get into rehab, when someone's just like, oh my God, I've been sober for three months. Everything's fine. I know what's wrong with me. Everything's great. You know, I can get in a relationship now. I can do this. I can, everything's fine. People are so desperate to be fine. To be, yeah, finish. To finish. They sell themselves short of the journey, of the struggle, which is the journey. For me, it's the pleasure. With that being said, I would like to invite you guys, if you're interested, into being truly vulnerable about what's happening right now in our lives and what we're actually still struggling with, you know, because I founded the activation project. We have this program to help people get fully activated. But the truth is I never finished the program because the mentor that I was working with, he and I sort of had a difference of viewpoints and opinions of stuff. I feel very strongly about, he felt very strongly about his viewpoint. It cut our time short. I still have not actually fully worked through my daddy issues, which I think for a lot of people might be really apparent. (laughs) You know, I still struggle with hypersexuality and really needing to validate myself in that department, which can, you know, it can manifest in unhealthy ways because every time you have sex with somebody, you entangle yourself with them. And that entanglement can be very difficult to break, especially since I've been running around all exposed, like a little exposed crab, like just like seeing who I can entangle myself with. And I've already gone through several heartbreaks in this year alone. I'm still working through that. There are things like that, that, you know, there's also when I first started the activation project, I was full of momentum. Christina witnessed this. She saw me bulldoze my way through all of the people that I was working with. And just like, it's my way or the highway. Let's go like jump on the bandwagon and you're going to get left behind. And I had several signs from the universe, from source energy, from my higher self, my subconscious mind that was just kind of 
was giving me that sort of reminder to like slow down and have patience. And because of that, I feel like I lost a lot of the momentum and the drive that I had. But thankfully, you know, I'm forming a new, beautiful, wonderful team. And they're giving me that push I need again to get going and make this happen, make it a reality because there's just so many people that need it. What I'm struggling with now is I am preparing to get married and have children. So all of my abandonment trauma is coming up, which is a lot. I know that I'll probably never finish with healing. That's one thing that I always tell people is that it's a journey with healing that you can never say I'm done healing because that could be probably one of the most dangerous people you could be around. Someone that says that they have no trauma and that their childhood was great. And I'm done healing. Those are the three things that like are serious red flags in me for people when speaking to them. But really going into my abandonment stuff and then also my people pleasing, which is I use my vulnerability to get people to think that they were helping me so they wouldn't hurt me by telling my story for a really long time and overcoming that. And also making things mean things and distorting them so much inside of my mind that I basically hallucinate a whole new problem that wasn't there. And I don't allow people to actually have their feelings around me because I make that mean something. So I take the situation, they're trying to share a feeling, I have a big emotion and trigger off of it. And then I make it about that. And then they don't feel safe sharing themselves with me. And then they're like, well, I can't bring that up anymore because every single time I do, you have a meltdown and then you make it about you. I don't feel safe to ever bring that up again. So that's been happening a lot in my relationship and stuff that we've been going into. So having to see that, taking it like a step back from that and noticing when I'm doing that. So if he comes to me and says, I'm not getting enough time with, with you. You're taking on a lot of clients. You know, I need this amount of time. I'm feeling neglected. And then I spiral off into oh, well, you know, you're not supporting, you're not doing this, you don't see what I'm trying to do, you don't see that I'm doing all these things, and then I get really upset about it, and then I, all I was just saying is I want more time with you. So I made it completely different. So those are the things that I'm really, really struggling with right now. I mean, I had a breakthrough yesterday and the day before. We actually went into these things, and it was a simple fix. It was just like, basically, he's like, hey, I want more time with you, and I was just like, freaking out, you don't support me, you all these things, and I was like, well, how about we put you on my schedule for three sessions a week, an hour and a half, where we pre-dive into things that could come up? And he was like, good, yes, because his inner children and stuff were freaking out that they weren't going to get their needs met, that no one was going to be there. He was being emotionally abandoned by me daily for my virtue of helping other people and changing lives. And people are saying, oh, you're changing, you're doing all these things. And he's like, but what about me? And I'm asking for this. So I was like, yeah, let's do that. Like, I will schedule three sessions with you a week. In the calendar, we're doing it. So we have one today. And now we can actually pre-go into things that could come up. So, you know, even if it's just a check-in where we sit there and we talk about what's feeling on the inside and seeing maybe if there's anything coming up, we can preemptively go into it before the part is just like, I'm completely neglected, I'm acting out, and it becomes like this huge uproar of emotions. And then, you know, and then it's like, then you start saying really awful and mean things to each other and you're not even talking to each other as a whole. You're talking to parts. Right. I want to talk about the importance of getting on the path for activation to activate your mind and your family before you get married and have children. Because of what we know about epigenetics and how trauma inadvertently by default is being transferred to your children if you are not educated or activated and it's going to come from both sides and it's not just enough 
for you and your partner to activate yourselves. You have to activate your friends and family that are going to be involved in the raising of your children. I have friends with narcissistic parents, with grandparents who fucked their children up so much and are about to fuck up their grandchildren too. And to go back to what we were talking about, about these same virtues and this like, you have to unconditionally forgive your parents for everything and you can't keep them from their grandchildren. Oh, sure as hell I can't. They are not going to come in and traumatize my children if they have not done the work on themselves to heal themselves it's just not gonna happen and there's obviously just so much trauma that we can block our children from because the truth is we want our children to suffer through adversity but we want it to be curated adversity because without adversity there cannot be resilience life is hard they need to struggle struggle is good but the right kind of struggle that's reinforced with love and i want to get married and have children more than anything like that's what i'm searching for but i know that i have to work through my flightiness because as soon as things get sticky i'm like i'm fucking out of here or i cheat you know as soon as i don't get enough love i'm like well i'm just gonna go get love from somebody else you know and i'll just knock a couple out You know, I have to get rid of the, or not get rid, but I have to understand them, feel them, integrate them, understand where they're coming from and how they have served me in the past and figure out what I need to do to get past it because I don't want to be doing that to a husband who loves me and wants to father my kids. Like, that's just not what I want to do. And I know that. So that's a really, really important thing for me is helping me. Like, if I were to come to Christina, Christina, I'm I'm struggling with these things still. Can you help me? What would that look like? So for you with your flightiness and your daddy issues, I would get to the root of those problems. Like, how is that an issue for you? And go deeper and deeper and deeper. If I don't have this, then this. So limiting decisions and beliefs that you've created inside of you that are holding you back from getting the things that you want. So when we take in information, we take in between 11 and 60 billion bits of information that comes through our five senses. And then it's generalized, deleted, and distorted based on your previous experiences. So your previous experiences have given you certain beliefs in your life that attract those things to you because our subconscious mind works based off of the least amount of resistance possible. So if you already have a belief that I'm flighty, it's going to bring things to you that are easy to fly from. And to delete that belief inside of you will actually open up your peripheral and allow more of those things for you to notice. And that's the reason why you're finding that you're only getting those things is because your mind is looking for those experiences over again because you've already believed it. Mm. So deleting those beliefs inside of us and then letting go of all the negative emotions around the first events and all the events throughout our lives with anger, hurt, shame, guilt, sadness. And so that basically you can move forward and you're not attracting from those things from the past and projecting them into your future to integrate through the pain. So that's what I would do with all those things, but finding out what all the, the beliefs are. And so we will be doing that very soon. I will keep you guys posted <laughs> on how it goes. It's my turn. Is that what yes. we're doing? Yes. Okay. So actually this kind of even goes in with the whole toxic vulnerability and, and toxic positivity. Trauma is not a competition. And we talked about this earlier. A lot of the issues that people have is that they'll hear maybe something that you went through and they're like, well, I didn't go through something that bad. So either what you have to say doesn't apply to me or my life isn't as bad, whatever. What happened with me, I was a survivor of really bad physical and sexual abuse till I was 16. And interestingly enough, I was never angry about it and I was never sad about it. I was always pretty open and and things like that. So I never thought that it was affecting me. 
But here's the thing. Trauma is going to manifest in one way or another. And if it doesn't manifest in the typical ways, a lot of times you can have a toxic positivity or vulnerability. You've been like, I'm very open about, oh, I was sexually abused since I was 16, but I'm not mad or sad. Everything's fine. And <laughs> I'm not mad or sad. Everything's fine. Woohoo! And it's just like, yeah, now let's just look at all your toxic relationships and how you, you know, things like that. Like, Are you getting abused, like still accepting abuse? Oh, absolutely. Trauma bonding and all those things. And so my life is the mirror image of what it used to be because the hypersexuality and the need for approval and constantly performing. You know, I do stand up comedy. I sing for a living. I am an author constantly performing and can you touch a little bit on histrionics yes i can histrionics is cluster b of personality disorder type 2 it falls in line with like narcissism borderline bipolar and then histrionic maybe not in that order but essentially histrionic is a personality disorder where you're always performing and because you're always performing, people look at you as either shallow or flighty, and you feel like you have a lot of acquaintances, but nobody really knows you. And you're always telling grandiose stories or talking with your hands. So it's a defense mechanism. It's using performance as a way to stay in control and to not be vulnerable. And vulnerability can be a performance as well. We talked about deflection too, where it's kind of like, let's say my finances are in disarray and I'm treating my significant other like shit. My life is a mess, but I'm going to be vulnerable about something else like smoke and mirrors. I'm going to deflect. I'm like, hey, I was sexually abused. I was sexually abused when I was 16. My mom used to beat me, feel bad for me. And let me show you how well adjusted I am and how honest I am. I'm a hero. I'm a hero. I'm a hero. Yeah. Well, you're a hero. Well, could you also be a dishwasher? Because there's a sink full of dishes that need to be done. It's like, but I'm a hero. And it's a form of deflection. So it's like, and then people will just be like, my God, you're so brave. And you're like, you're right. I don't have to do the dishes. And, and then the people who are really close to you is like, oh, there they are playing the sexual abuse card again. And but they're laying on their rents. Oh my God, my dog. Oh, come here, baby. The dog agrees. See? Okay, baby. Will you shut the door so the cat doesn't come in? So I'm going to attempt to hold the puppy. Everybody, this is Mer. She's Hi, a five-year-old. Cattle dog, you just hit me. Five-month-old. Five, what did I say? Year. So I say all that with that performance is now I am 10 days away from being one year sober. And now that I am attempting to not be in denial about things, something has flipped in me. And it's funny that all three of ours have to do with relationships. Because now... In the same way, like, I want to get married, I want to have kids. It's almost like that part of me has shut down. So I'm not struggling with hypersexuality or, or anything like that. What has happened is my outlook on intimacy and romance is so tied to performance, which is so tied to trauma, that not trying to sound awesome or anything like that, but like, even as a boyfriend, I was always performing. I was like, words of affirmation. You know, when it's sexual, it's just like, I am a giver. I'm going to cook you dinner every day. I'm going to do all this stuff. I'm going to just... Now, if you have to perform to make it till you, whatever, fake it till you make it, go right ahead. Yeah. 
Well, by the way, and those things in and of themselves aren't bad. Those are great things. But that also allowed people to stay with me longer yeah. than they should have. Right. Because even though I'm a raging alcoholic, it's like this dude's writing sonnets about me and he's, you know, he's cooking <laughs> dinner for me all the time and go down on me for an hour, things like that. But that's, again, that's another performance, Smoke yeah. and Mirrors. As weird as it sounds, all the good things that I did, though I still like to do them, they weren't rooted in pure love. They were rooted in a need for me to perform, to compensate from all of the trauma, which I don't need to unpack. So now that I'm learning to just be present and not need to perform, now it's almost like it's not that I don't want to do those things. It's that I don't want to do anything. And so I almost feel asexual. I almost feel aromantic. I'm like. Because you don't know how to truly show up as you're just yourself. Yeah. And you have so much fear that you won't be accepted just for who you are. So now what I have to do is like all of those things were virtuous on the surface because I love to cook. I, you know, love being physically intimate. I will talk nonstop, even during sex and things like that. Like that is just something that I will do, but it has to be rooted in being present. It can't be rooted in histrionic of performing. I know that seems like a subtle thing. And yeah, dude, obviously fake it till you make it because that momentum, if you really do love somebody and you need that momentum to figure out how to be comfortable with it. So for me, I haven't just torn down the house. I've like ripped up the foundation and now I'm just on a plot of dirt with my dog. And I'm just like, you talk about creating narratives in your head about like things like that. My brain will be like, let's say I'll compliment you. It's like, oh, you're really beautiful. And then my brain will be like, are you performing? Do I think she's beautiful? Or am I just saying she's beautiful because I'm performing for her because I know that she'll like it? By the way, she's still in the room after I said that. Now I'm not present anymore. I'm in this weird meta cycle of meta analysis of like, why am I doing this? And then it's so much so that I've just been like, I don't know how to even be romantic and intimate, which is kind of okay right now because I got a lot of shit going on. But eventually I'm just going to have to dive in. I wonder if I'm just going to have to be honest with somebody and say to them, Always. like, hey, this is what I struggle with. So I'm like a fish out of water right now. And there's one other thing that I wanted to point out. And it actually came from what something you guys had said, one of the podcasts that I listened to. And I, I want to hear what you guys have to say about this. You said you want to get married and have kids and you wanted a monogamous relationship is what you're talking about. You want someone who's just, you're enough for them. And my first thought, and this isn't a critique on you, but my first thought was, okay, I want that too. But I wonder, am I falling in love with that that person wants that with me? Or am I falling in love with that person? Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Of so it's, you know, it's kind of like, I mean, obviously, in, it would just be like, oh, I'm just Trust me, that. the last several times were just was totally that. Okay, great. But you can provide, uh, we can be a good team. Okay, uh, let's just do it. You know, it's just like several, it's just the worst. But Something that Christina would always tell me is like, yeah, you have to include the other person in the process of whatever you're going through. That's a really good point. And because our tendency to negotiate for other people's needs in our heads is so strong because our parents did that for us since we were children. They were constantly negotiating for us, for our own needs, instead of letting us negotiate. And so we do that all the time. You know, it's like, let's say your husband's job is to take the trash out. But he doesn't do it and you keep doing it and you keep building up a grudge. And then you're like, well, I want to talk to him, but, you know, maybe he's going to get mad or maybe he's going to react in this way. So I just won't say anything. And then it just builds up and builds up until finally you're ready to just have a divorce. And you come to him and you're like, you know what? I want a divorce. And he's like, wait, why? Because 
it's your job to take out the trash and I do it every fucking day or whatever it is. And they're like, oh my God, well, why didn't you just say something? Or like if you want a raise and instead of going to ask your boss for a raise because you're so sure he's going to say no, you quit and go get another job. It's the same thing. You have to let the other person have a chance to give their perspective or give their needs and just let them in. Let them in with the process. Do you have anything else to talk about on what he had said? Uh, yes, because... I have been a people pleaser since I can remember. So that's the only way that I got my needs met. I'm hyper sensitive, hyper attuned to people. It's very inferential. Like case in point, I do meal prep for some people and they brought back and they're like, oh, I brought you this pan back because you can't fill in the cake. So I made them a cake that night because I was like, is that what they want? You know? Nice. Um, Wait, what does that mean? Inferential. Like, No, no, no. I know what inferential means, but what did, what did they mean when they said that? Exactly. I inferred that that's what they meant. I don't because get they, love, they, they love the cake that I make them when I oh. bring it to oh. them and they brought me my pan back. That's like something, I'll give you 10 minutes to stop doing that, like when you give them a massage, something like that. No, so, okay, so if I said, oh, I'm thirsty, an inferential person would take that, I need to get you water. Oh, uh, okay. And then another person would be like, oh, that's great. You know what I mean? So I'm very inferential. Okay, got it. Um, yeah, like when you were saying, you know, your allergies were kicking you in. Take it my, first, my first thought was I should run to the store and get some Claritin. See? Yeah, that that was the first thought that I had. I was like, do I have any Benadryl? No, that'll make me sleep. I could get some Claritin. I bet yeah. I could be back in time. See? was my first thought. See, this, she, he's very inferential. Like, yeah. So as what you were saying is I've been where you're at, but I'm actually in relationships. So my relationship, I got that relationship by going all out, like cooking, cleaning, whole nine yards first, first time we met do you want to have a threesome with me on our first date like all all, all like just like went all in and then even after all those things happened and we started getting into trauma and things and you know started talking about alignment and fragmentation and stuff and started getting integrated he made it safe for me to say no start saying no i don't want to do this and then he's like oh you did the whole switch on me like Oh, you don't Ooh. want to do that now. You don't want to be involved that way. You're not oh. doing all the things that you were doing. And he's like, these are the pretenses that you got me under. And now they're going away. And I'm like, well, this is the trauma that I have. And we're working through those things. And I was like, do you want me to do it? Because I just want to please you. And then now he can kind of see. He's just like, you're not doing this because you're fully presently here. You're doing it just because you want to show that you care about me. And yeah. it's been like reconciling that back and forth, understanding what I am and when I'm not doing it. And then having the actual dialogue because it can be very difficult, especially when it comes to sexual stuff, because I was sexually abused by 10 different members of my family for years and years and years. And I mean, it happened over 2,000 times. So that was the way that I got attention. And I was hypersexualized for a really long time. And now it's just like, I don't want anyone to touch me. I don't want to do that. Like, it's not something I, I was doing it so I could get love. Yeah. That was the only way that I, I, people paid attention to me. So reconciling that after being hypersexual with someone that I started a relationship that way. And now, like, kind of reworking that whole dynamic has been a little bit difficult. But uh, having someone that's actually willing to go through it with me and says, if you need to go one month without having any sex, he's like, I could do that. He's like, I would do that for you so you can retake a hold of your sexuality and reclaim it in the way that you want to and explore new things and things that, you know, we can actually get on the same page with. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, but that's, that's a really hard one because that's is. what couples go through is like they'll start the relationship with this, you know, fire and brimstone sex life and just like fuck everywhere and get thrown up against the wall and all this stuff. And then over time, especially if one person feels safe to go into their sexual trauma, they 
start to get more in touch with their body and realize that that's not really what they want, that it actually hurts and that they're just giving. But that's one of the main qualifications for being able to get divorced is if, you know, the wife stops putting out, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, you know, she's stopped fucking me, you know? And she's usually the one that has to stop fucking because of babies and everything else. So to be able to be in a relationship with a man who can accept that and work through it, and I know talk. And Cole, they have a podcast, Mentor in the Mirror, which is, I heard them talk about it, and that they had a similar situation, and it went on for quite a long time, and finally Tal was like, well, you know what, I think it's time for me to take my sexuality back, you know, and take ownership back of it so that he could get his needs met in different ways or however he wanted, you know. So there's always different options. There's always the third option, which Christina talks about, where everyone gets their needs met, and nobody's having to compromise or give up some part of their happiness it's just really powerful we are both cancers this will also resonate like with everything that he says about constantly being performing because we're so desperate to be seen and heard and then at the end of the day we go home feeling like we're not seen or heard because we've been putting on this show and performance the entire time another thing is that the people that know us very well that hang out with us a lot can perceive us to be shallow because we constantly are saying the same things we're saying the same stories and so it's like you can almost finish our punchlines because they know oh she's telling that story this is the what she's gonna say exactly exactly i resonate with that and then just quickly to go back to what we're saying about you know being in these relationships longer than we should is because we're very resilient so what i realized that the the tendency or the challenge with being so resilient is the tendency to not learn from our mistakes because we're like i handled that wasn't a big deal i can come back that's why i was yeah toxic endurance right that's why i stayed in an abusive relationship for three years and then many after that subsequently because you know it wasn't that big of a deal i could handle it it's interesting, just one more thing to touch on since you got me all vulnerable and shit. It's not just with my relationship. It's something that I'm struggling with all across because there is the aspect of the sales pitch where, you know, that's more of like, hey, you did this at the beginning and now you don't want to do that. And for me, it's because how I am isn't, I still want to do all the things that I'm doing. There wasn't like, I'm going to do this at the beginning. Like I cooked for you for the first year. Now I don't want to. It's like my entire relationship with reality. It isn't so much that what I'm doing is bad. It's like, I need to be a part of what I'm doing for you. I mean, obviously not you, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I need to be a part of what I'm doing. And it's like, it's, it needs it's, to be for you just yeah, as much as it is for them. Exactly. And, and that is the biggest struggle. And when just trying to find myself, my identity and what I'm doing for other people, whether it's music, whether it's my writing, because I, I just realized that everything I do is for other people. And though that feels selfless, and that's always looked on as a virtue. There is some sort of weird disconnect. And I don't have the answer for that. I think it's just a daily struggle of, for me, being completely sober and just, like, I literally have this voice in my head that says, savor this moment. Remember this. Like, that's pretty much my only job for the day. I wake up, to-do list, be present. And that's what I just constantly remind myself to do. But Love it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your book? A little bit yeah, about your absolutely. And- absolutely. So when I checked into rehab October 8th uh, of last fall, I was challenged by some of the counselors there. They're like, hey, you're a pretty good writer. And I'm like, yeah, I've done it my whole life. They're like, why don't you write something every day, whether it's a journal entry or 
is write something every single day for a year. Now, I'm not someone who sticks with things unless it's music, but I was like, yeah, I can do that. Turn over any leaf. So I started writing every single day. And to keep myself consistent, I tapped into my histrionic performance thing. And I'm like, I'll post it on Facebook every day. Because I know if people are reading it and looking forward to it, I can tap into that energy. Which, of course, affected how I wrote. Because if I knew people were going to read it, I'm not writing myself. Can I ask you something? Sure. I asked, or I was talking to my friend Ali about the whole histrionic thing and how I also am constantly performing. Like, I'll ride my bike down South Congress and dance my little booty off. But she's like, do you ever get tired? Like, do you ever get tired of performing? I was like, no. It gives me energy. Like, it's literally what energizes me. I I love it. I was just going to say that. I will drink tons of energy drinks and feel exhausted, but then I'll be on like no sleep and I'll get a chance to perform. And all of a sudden I'm just like, I can show you the world. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then I, yeah, a lot of times when I'm on stage, I'll do four hour, four and a half hour concerts, no breaks, just Bruce Springsteen style. To go back to what I was saying. So I was writing every single day and out of nowhere, people started private messaging me. I think I might be an alcoholic. I really like your writing. I had people from other countries, like, Basically, it turned into this whole thing where people started looking forward to it every day. And I didn't make a blog about it or anything like that. I just kept it on Facebook with my not very many friends. But people started sharing it. And like three or four people have checked into rehab because of it. So long story short, I ended up getting a a really great investor who wants to work on publishing the book. And we're going to self-publish it and launching a podcast about it. Stumbling Towards Sobriety. Stumbling Towards Sobriety. Stumbling Towards Sobriety will be the podcast and the book. And essentially, and just last thing about the book is I'm not going to edit any of it. And I've gone back and I've read entries from like day 20. Could you read us maybe like one or two or three? My phone is the camera. So can you? Oh, yeah. I'll look it up while you're talking. Yeah. So there are things that I wrote when I was like day 30 or day 40 that I don't agree with, or I was angry that day or I was sad or was being self-centered. And the whole point of it, it's not a book of wisdom of like, this is how you get sober. It's literally just a snapshot of what I was thinking about for a full year. And some of it's cringe as hell. Is this my, so this is what I wrote yesterday. For example, I wrote physical beauty, power, and wealth are not virtues in and of themselves. Rarely are they sustained through virtuous means. A person's character isn't rooted so much in where they are, but rather how they got there. So that was kind of based on a lot That's of our beautiful. conversations. Yeah, and to go back to virtue, you know, when I learned that definition of love, I was like, love, well, what virtues do I even have? And then I realized that I had the most important virtue for me, which is courage. Because without courage, you can't truly love someone because you can't become vulnerable. You can't let down your guards. You can't go into your pain. You can't take have the courage to take their needs as your needs, which is what her definition of love requires, which is what his definition of love requires, and what is my definition of love requires. They all require courage. And so that's what I had in ACES, you know, and so I held on to that. And now I'm drawn to people with such obvious courage because they have just made it through hell and back. And it's a wonderful place to be to meet somebody on the, the battlefield where you're both just armed with courage and bravery. I wanted to read one more positive one. So this one I wrote, so this is 69. So this would have been like two months and nine days. Some of these are really lighthearted, but it goes laugh a lot at everything all the time. Nothing is off limits, the good, the bad, 
the times you were ugly, the weird shit you do with your friends, the weirder shit you do when you're alone. Laugh out loud in a crowded theater at all the inappropriate parts. Laugh at your fears, your failures, your breakups, your bad haircuts, your broken heart. Crack jokes at a funeral. Laugh out loud because they can't. Laugh even louder if they wouldn't want you to. Belittle your bully, your abuser. They won't get the joke because it's them. Make fun of your baggage, your breakdowns. You can pull no punches without being a punchline. Allow your laughter to illuminate the darkness. It always makes Makes the monster smaller. So that's one of my. I always laughed at very ones. inappropriate times. Me too. Like somebody just told me someone died. I don't know how to respond to this. <laughs> Laughing is great. It's been my survival for sure. And this guy is freaking hilarious. And so is she, even though she's just discovering <laughs> it. No, I they both have stitches. I have a, like a few minutes get for stand up, but. I've never told anyone. Do you want to? No, not now. Why? Okay. okay. <laughs> and then, of course, we're working on our clothesline with all of her funny little quips and logos and stuff like that. Slogans, which we'll have out soon. Where can everybody find you, Justin? Well, you can go to stumblingtowardsobriety.com, which means I got to check to make sure that link is still up. I also have an album coming out at the beginning of the year. but uh, What's it called? I don't have a name for it yet, but Justin Richard Holcomb. We're actually getting ready to do a whole social media blitz, but something tells me that I will probably be able to tell them later on where they can find me. We'll do the links yeah. on the show notes and stuff like that. God, this is one of my favorite episodes so far. Next week, we have another survivor from the cult, the Children of God, the Family, the Family International. His name is Jiju. He's from India. He joined in Bombay in like 1998. He was there for 13 years and then he narrowly escaped with his life and is now thriving and living a beautiful, beautiful life in Oklahoma. So we'll be interviewing him for our upcoming podcast. So definitely stay tuned. If you would like to support the cause, we are a nonprofit. Please go to our website, theactivationproject.com. You can sponsor someone's journey to recovery or to get them on the road to recovery. Or you can get yourself on one and we would love to help you. Please email us at become.activated at gmail.com. We love you guys so freaking much. Goodbye for now. Bye.